You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect Charles Holland, a former director of the art and architecture practice Fashion Architecture Taste, better known as FAT. As Holland has described it, FAT stemmed from a dissatisfaction about the limits of architectural culture. And together with fellow directors Sean Griffiths and Sam Jacob, he wanted to make architecture swim in the same fast waters as other forms of popular culture, embracing the immediacy and absurdity of fashion and celebrating the fleeting ephemerality of taste. Fat was active from the 1990s until the end of 2013, and following its planned breakup, Holland established the short-lived design studio Ordinary Architecture together with Ellie Ward. He has more recently been practicing as Charles Holland Architects. I met with Charles back in August in Shoreditch at the office of Henley Hellbrown Architects, where I work. We talked about, among other things, the rise and fall of Fat. Holland's involvement in architecture's early blog culture, and the more recent trajectory of Holland's work from the highly ornamental House for Essex to recent buildings which prioritize material and form over image and narrative. A quick side note, we recorded this interview before the death of the architect Robert Venturi last month. Together with Denise Scott Brown, Venturi inspired generations of architects to relish in the messy realities of history and context revealing a deep strangeness and humor within the seemingly ordinary world we've made for ourselves. Holland's work is in part a testament to Venturi's influence, which is where we begin the conversation. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. first discovered Robert Venturi. <laughs> I was just reading through like old uh, notes I'd taken in, way back in architecture school and a lot of especially what uh, was written in Complexity and Contradiction really rings true when uh, looking at the work that Fat did and to a certain extent the work that you do now mm. um, around the idea um, that there's that there can be an interest not in architecture per se, but in how architecture relates to other things. Um, and I mean, there's some other lines that I've, I just kind of want to read out uh, just to have them out there for other people to hear as well um, that, um, that kind of make up Venturi's not straightforward architecture, a gentle manifesto. Um, so... I'm for richness of meaning rather than clarity of meaning. I like elements which are hybrid rather than pure, compromising rather than clean, distorted rather than straightforward, conventional rather than designed, 
And so this like privileging of richness of meaning mm. over clarity of meaning uh, to me is incredibly exciting. Um, and I think that like there must have been a, quite a strong resonance with you when you first came across mm. that work as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when I was in my final year at the Bartlett, I, I got into um, computer modeling. <laughs> this might sound an oblique response, but one of the things <laughs> that meant was um, actually making quite a lot of things that look specific like other things. So a certain sort of interest in like mimetic qualities. Okay. So I started to make buildings out of um, designs out of bits of modelled versions of other things and I had a project which included bits of kind of classical columns and bits of objects from paintings and things and I became quite interested in postmodernism and certain kind of collagist architecture through that I think the idea of things being collages of, sort of recognisable objects and that was partly through computer modelling and partly through Photoshop techniques um, so I remember starting to reappraise that work a bit in my final year and looking at work which probably I would previously have dismissed because it didn't, precisely because it didn't have a kind of abstraction to it, um, but actually might be a building where the, you know, the window looked like a window and a, a, a front door might look like a front door, <laughs> and, but they might be set into something which didn't quite look like they belonged there that started to become a kind of interesting design approach. Um, so that probably primed me to read that book, and I didn't read it until after that point. Um, and um, I also came across it in a book that Sean had in the office, which is Dan Graham's Rock My Religion, okay. where Dan Graham talked quite extensively about the work of Venturi Scott Brown. And he talked about it in a way which was really refreshing because I mentioned that, certainly in my degree, uh, the ideology, the dominant ideology, was a sort of broadly modernist. So I, objects were meant to be straight rather than complex or broken. Things were meant to be pure rather than hybrid. Um, all the things that, in a way, Venturi was writing about in the 60s were still quite present in the sort of discourse that I had been brought into in mm -hmm. architecture. Not, not exclusively, there were people talking about other, other things, but I think there was definitely a strong strain of that. You know, certain things about structural honesty, truth to materials, clarity of construction, the logic of a grid or the planning diagram um, were things that you were taught that were intrinsic to the way you designed. No one was saying you you know, you'd make a sort of perverse inflection to recognise <laughs> some kind of condition in the way that Venturi did. So, um, and Venturi is definitely seen as a bit beyond the pale by most, um, most tutors and a lot of practising architects. Um, and so finding a kind of contemporary artist who was a highly respected, rather sort of theoretically inclined artist who was taking Venturi Scott Brown very seriously mm -hmm. and also looking at them as contemporaries who were doing things in architecture which related to certain conceptual art techniques was really interesting and quite liberating. Mm -hmm. So I remember very pointedly um, Dan Graham who of course did a project which is Alterations to Suburban Home yeah. 
So again, he's sort of interested in the kind of popular cultural milieu of architecture, and then he placed various mirrors into it, and there are games of perception, representation, the relationship of the television set to the kind of domestic realm. And he talks about um, the Leap House by Venturi Scott Brown, um, saying that that building was also a kind of mirror to its surroundings. And I'd never really thought about it like that. Mm. And he, if you look at that building, which is a, a white cube, uh, made of asbestos shingles with mm. a dark asbestos shingles at the top and you look at that in the context that it is you realize that what Venturi does in that building is do a sort of drawing of the buildings around it which of course have white sides and then dark pitched roofs but he kind of extrudes that into a representation of the surroundings. So when Dan Graham talks about that building as being like a mirror, holding a mirror up to its contacts, which was um, fairly simple, often self-built houses near the beach in that particular location, the building is a rather erudite sort of both commentary and uh, reflection of that context. So that was really, really super interesting to me and because it opened up postmodernism to readings I hadn't really appreciated before, but also gave it a sort of legitimacy in a way from a, in a sense of like what an intellectual project behind it. Uh -huh. So that was really interesting. And then I read, then I read Complexity Contradiction, which I, you know, think is an absolutely brilliant book. Um, and that did something else, which slightly opened up to me uh, uh, looking at buildings, which sounds a bit obvious. <laughs> But the way that he looks at and talks about architecture, I don't think I'd actually been exposed to before. Um, and the way that he sort of weaves his way through a whole series of, sort of reference points of buildings. But ultimately what he is talking about is buildings and how they work. And I think I personally became very interested in architectural theory for a while. It sounds like I was producing it in some highfalutin way, but I wasn't. I think I just became quite interested in reading quite a lot about that. And complexity and contradiction sort of slightly shifted my attitude to back towards looking at the object itself as opposed to sort of secondary readings of mm. it. And I'd read a lot of, you know, critical theory and architectural theory interested and influenced by post-structuralism, which, you know, which really interested me at the time. But in a way that it got very remote from the subject. It's funny because when you mentioned those um, theoretical movements before, I could sense like you were kind of looking at me and there was a question like, does he understand what I'm saying right now? <laughs> and I, to a certain extent I do, but I think there is that anxiety that um, the language we use uh, to talk about architecture um, in some ways I mean, some people have argued that it's, it's just for other architects to hear, or even the audience might be more limited than that in some cases. But at the same time, there's so much joy in theory. Mm. Uh, like, I feel that too. Um, but there's this problem of like, kind of like using theory in a way that uh, opens up a conversation to, mm. to everybody. Mm. And I feel like, when you mentioned Dan Graham, uh, to me he's kind of like a spokesperson for architecture, but from outside the field. He, um, 
I think that's very true. He's kind of like staking claims for architecture rather than producing it. And that's actually, that's a Venturi line, I know. But I feel like to a certain extent, that's what Fat was doing as well. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of the Dan Graham work, in, in some senses, is a commentary on modern architecture. His interest in reflections, mirrors, glass, certain kinds of international style um, architectural languages and the spaces that come out of that. His interest, I suppose you could say, in like corporate space or non-space is another, probably not his term, but another term uh, that, that comes out of a sort of interest, I suppose, in the rather generic spaces that modernism produced. And his work was often looking at the kind of micro-territories in that and the sort of psychological complexities of those spaces and to some extent a commentary on the architecture and the machinery of the architecture that makes that happen. I definitely think with some of the more interesting postmodernism, there was again a kind of commentary on the role of architecture. And I was always really interested in that. And the, I mean, two really formatively, massively influential bits of writing for me were um, one, Robin Evans's Figures, Doors and Passages, mm -hmm. which I, I was taught by him and I saw him, he delivered that as a lecture and then I read it in, the, in his book. And the relationship between certain kinds of uh, social and human organisation and architecture I thought was really profound. That in particular he talks about how the invention of the corridor is a, both a reflection of and a development of senses of privacy and the way that people organise themselves. And I'd never really thought about architecture before like mm. that. That was really profound. And then the other one was probably Beatrice Colomina's um, various bits of writing on Adolf Loos, mm -hmm. and in particular the kind of gendered and sexualized spaces of his interiors and the psychological games, you could say, that are, again, about viewing and, um, again, mirrors and reflections and occupying more than one space at one time and mm -hmm. spaces that are perhaps coded as male or female. And that, again, that relationship between architecture and spatial planning and social and political organisation was really important. Um, but I think having looked in, at that material and read quite a lot of it, again, you know, what was interesting, I suppose, about complexity and contradiction and where it pushed me in a slightly different direction was just very simply a kind of enjoyment of looking at buildings again. <laughs> and enjoying and starting to enjoy their kind of richness and starting to find a, another way to read them, mm -hmm. um, which I hadn't before. And I also, you know, made me interested in a whole load of architects I'd never really taken any notice of. So most obviously, I suppose, classical architects and particularly kind of architects of the Baroque and Manorist period. So um, whether they're English ones like Vanbrugh and Soane, to some extent, Hawksmoor. Um, or you know Michelangelo, or later people like Lutyens who were doing, again, work which has some kind of mannerist tendencies and, again, plays with hybrid forms and complexities of reading and form. Um, and um, I became, yeah, really interested in that. So that was another point of departure, maybe, from a, what was the accepted set of reference points mm -hmm. for an architect at that point. I kind of want to go back and like think about um, this moment where you're kind of, you're fresh out of school and full of ideas and are kind of alive to the possibilities of architecture. 
Um, and then you join this practice, which uh, in its early days seems more like a conceptual art collective to some extent than an architecture office. But then over time becomes mm. that. Mm. And like, what was that trans transition like mm. for you to kind of enter the world of of architecture as a practitioner, you're a registered architect, you're a project lead, you're a director of a company. Like, did you start to feel like you're being pulled away from um, these earlier ideas? Or how did you find ways of, um, of holding on to them and, and kind of infusing them into your professional work? Well, I think when I started at FAT, I was very interested in the world of conceptual art and probably had quite a um, critical uh, and antagonistic relationship with the world of architecture at that point. Um, I probably saw myself slightly self-righteously as being, you know, rather, yeah, uh, antagonistic towards mainstream architectural culture and FAT was definitely like a vehicle for um, that. And I think a lot of FAT's early work, certainly at that point, there were two things about it I think were symptomatic of something. One was that they were quite often quite collectively done. And I think the idea of working as a collective and a collaborative practice and multi-authored projects is super interesting. But it of course leads to it led to projects which were very um, in a way quite logocentric in a sense. They were quite language based because they were articulating a position. Um, and there were projects like AdSite, which was um, in bus shelters, and then another one which was about business cards as a sort of location for artworks, which were, um, had an architectural component, which was that we saw them as spatial things and things that had programs and briefs, but they weren't in any way traditional architecture. So um, they inhabited multiple spaces, didn't involve any permanent buildings. They were architectural in the sense that they involved that territories and people and spatial relationships and also they're interested in the way that value is created and uh, interest in that came out of con conceptual art in that sense. So I think I was quite in tune with that at that point and I wasn't seeing like oh well I wish I was at Foster Associates and learning how to detail. In some respects <laughs> now I wish I was at Foster Associates learning how to detail. Um, and we were quite we were quite kind of knocky and chippy about what we were up to and in a sense our, our innocence and lack of grounding in normative architectural practice was both a great opportunity, like we were pretty fearless, and at the same time we probably made huge numbers of mistakes. <laughs> I think because at that point FAT was genuinely quite a large group of people who came from dis disciplines uh, there were people involved who um, were artists and on the peripheries of architecture. Um, the interest was quite broad and deliberately to not be a conventional architectural practice in any way, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. I think because Sean, Sam and I were architects and remained at the sort of centre of it and sort of moved it forward, our natural kind of interests and in architecture sort of pushed it over time much more and more towards being a kind of architecture practice. And when we folded, there was a kind of sense that we, we folded because we'd become such an architecture practice that we felt it was 
too big a distance from its starting point. It never. It was like a project rather than a career, and the project had sort of run itself out, huh. and that um, it wasn't our intention to set up a architectural practice in that way. Um, but I think we, you know, we, we, you know, obviously deeply interested in architecture, and unavoidably just became more and more so. Let's talk more about the death of fat then. <laughs> um, so, in a way, becoming an architectural practice is a kind of failure in terms of the ambitions that you guys had set out for yourselves. Yes, we really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, th- um, I mean, I think there's probably a whole number of reasons, um, but I, I think. That, a genuine one was the sense that the project had yeah, run its course and that maybe in some way it's fair to say that trying to stay true to those ideals meant, uh, those earlier ideals meant, okay, well, let's, let's call it a day. <laughs> and I think we'd also become three individuals to an extent that we hadn't been at the beginning. I do think that we were a very sort of tight, close unit for a long time where the work came out of a conversation between three people in a really rich and unexpected way. Um, and often the projects emerged from a sort of provocation between us as to what, you know, what was possible, desirable to do. It was as much provocation to each other as it was to a kind of architectural culture beyond. Um, but I think we probably started to become less reliant on each other mm. and in that sense then it felt it was starting to feel increasingly like it might be three individual practices rather than one entity mm. I think we also wanted to recognise that and not silo off into sort of three partners who each run their own projects that mm-hmm. didn't really feel like what we'd set out to do either and if we wanted to do that it might be better to do that properly <laughs> So in some sense, the three of you are kind of coming into your own and realizing that uh, naturally that meant uh, paths were diverging. Yeah, I think there were some elements of divergence, some elements of not quite maybe needing each other's input in the way that we might previously have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and a sense that maybe more interesting things might come out of a new start Mm -hmm. and I think there's definitely a sense that we felt that maybe we had started to some extent to be um, trapped a little bit in our own reputation like people expected certain things of us whether that was um, things we might say or certain stylistic tropes and tics that we had that felt like it would be much easier to move on from them outside of that than within uh-huh. Um, and that we didn't really want to repeat ourselves um, we didn't really want to have a house style mm. we didn't want to begin to have a kind of proper way of doing things each time mm-hmm. you know, it was always a very ideas led practice and experimental in that sense Like I, the idea of how to do a project came out of that project rather than a set of things that we brought into it um, so in a way, it's becoming like there are, a formula was making itself. I think I, I think that's 
I think we were a fair way away from becoming a kind of formula, but I think there were maybe senses that that could happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we were still, and, and that it would be easier to sort of be inventive and to find new, interesting kind of paths and stuff if we shook things up more radically. Even the way that the practice folded was quite dramatic. I felt like there was a lot of publicity around uh, the end of FAT. And um, I mean, there was a, you, a FAT co-edited an issue of Architectural Design. Architect's Journal. Architect's Journal. But there was also, before that, uh, with Charles Jenks, mm. AD, mm. Uh, an issue on radical postmodernism, which maybe that was... Prior to the that was that was a couple of years before two or three years I maybe think, that was like the death split. rattle then because I feel like there's <laughs> something there's like I feel like reading that and kind of watching the fallout around that there's a kind of like excitement and anticipation but also like it felt kind of ominous in a way it's almost like that's the beginning of eulogizing this. It seemed like it was marking the end of something. Mm. I mean, once it appears in a publication like that, um, to that degree of like kind of dis- discursive detail, yeah, it feels like it's it's actually come to an end at that point. Definitely, I, I think there's an inevitable aspect of that. I think in trying to sort of you know explain your work and ref- and there's a certain amount of reflection on some years of working mm-hmm. that's in- involved in that, and also probably more obliquely, like you suggest, in the naming of something, although there's a certain kind of death in that, and uh-huh. just sort of going, okay, now that's what it was about. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and I, I think that is probably not exactly conscious at that time, but we maybe became aware of that in doing it and in the immediate aftermath of that. I think that AD on radical postmodernism was, was quite interesting in relation to what's happened since, because it it's quite a drift in a way in the highs and lows of postmodernism. It predates its current fashionability by some time, mm. but is also a kind of precursor to it. Yeah. But I think we also felt a little bit in writing that maybe we had mined that particular seam mm. quite enough. Um, so I think, I think that is true to some extent and um, might have been a way of trying to sign off a bit on some of those interests. I mean, we had been looking at and talking about a lot of the themes in that issue for a good decade. Mm. Um, and it was a bit like a sort of greatest hits of our influences. It's because like, when you start to look back and take stock of what was, by nature you're already somewhere else. I guess that's what I meant to say. Yes. I By think, nature, yeah. already beyond that. I like to think of that that period as very much fat, sort of decadent, double album face. <laughs> we were teaching at Yale, which all three of us were doing, and we were writing that, uh-huh. and um, probably spending quite a lot of time doing both, <laughs> um, which was very nice, but maybe not generating new things in quite an energetic way that we might have been in the years leading up to that. But I guess it's kind of, in some ways, it is important to, to do that kind of work, to take stock and articulate uh, for the record what's going on, mm. like mm. What, what's happening with your work. Um, 
and kind of having final say mm. in a way? I think it, was, it felt really important to us at the time that we've been talking about sort of interest in postmodernism, which I think is also useful to say at this point. A slightly contradictory one <laughs> in, the, in the true postmodernist tradition. It was full of co contradiction for us. Some of our interest in postmodernism was simply that it was not what you're meant to be looking at and it was deeply unpopular and as we described it kind of slightly toxic yes that work is coming up um, so we were interested in it therefore as a mechanism to expose certain um, cycles of taste and operations in which architecture was sort of complicit but didn't really want to talk about which is why did everyone why after a period of everyone designing you know, stick on facades that everyone suddenly decided that not to do that anymore. Not only not to do that anymore, but condemn anyone who might do it. And that seems to us quite interesting. There were uh, intersections, I suppose, between architecture again and sort of popular culture and popular taste and moments in time and stuff that we wanted to sort of talk about. And then um, we also were genuinely interested in some of the work that came out of that. And, um, you know, Venturi and Scott Brown, most obviously, but also. Charles Moore, um, certain aspects of you know people like I guess Stanley Tigerman and mm -hmm. uh, other American postmodernists, but also things that slightly intersected with that. I mean, always like the work of Sterling, um, but even things more obliquely than that, like some of the work of you know the early work of the Smithsons and things which had interest in pop culture, which you could see as precedents for postmodernism. So there was a genuine interest in and kind of love of some of the material and then a more um, kind of one step removed interest in what it revealed or allowed one to talk about mm -hmm. in architecture um, and we've been talking about that for quite a long time so I probably did feel like we wanted to somehow kind of gather that together um, and the beginnings of a reappraisal of postmodernism were in the air so there was the V&A exhibition mm -hmm. so again it felt like a, an opportunity to say actually you know this is kind of what we think about that and this is how it's intersect with our, intersected with our work and the, the thing we wanted to say mostly about it was to say that our interest in it was not um, sort of conservative or nostalgic but had this radical impulse to do with both the interests of postmodernism itself and the way it sort of come in and then out of architectural legitimacy. Mm. I want to talk about that word in a bit, just like it, this idea of being radical or radicality. But before that, I just have a question about writing. Mm. Uh, you had a blog called Fantastic Journal, which you kept throughout the duration of of uh, Fat's existence, um, and then closed right after mm. the practice ended. Yeah, I mean, the, writing the blog was really important for me, actually. I hadn't really written anything for quite some time when I started writing it, and we've done a few joint bits of writing for at Fat, mm -hmm. but I, I hadn't really sort of been regularly writing one thing, so it's an opportunity to do that. I really found it um, generated a lot of kind of ideas for me and then also mo most importantly about it it generated a kind of conversation I mean I started reading blogs before I started writing one 
And at that time, there seemed to be a really interesting conversation going on between quite disparate people uh -huh. um, that I was suddenly quite energised by in a way that I hadn't been reading kind of architectural magazines for quite some time. I said, that, oh, actually, here is the kind of spirit of architectural writing and thinking, which I've been slightly lacking. Mm. And definitely some of the people that I was reading at that time, I think, shared a similar sense that we'd all been sort of quite voracious readers of things like the music press and style press like The Face. Mm. And that kind of type of writing, which was really, really heavily engaged with kind of culture, but also had a, an interest in writing about that quite kind of seriously, mm -hmm. felt was sort of missing in architectural writing. So that was really interesting. So I started reading them and then when I started writing one, it, it felt like a way, it generated a, quite a lot of conversation and I, I found that incredibly useful and stimulating at that time. Like some of the blogs I remember reading during that period were like, uh, was it Own Hathaway's Sit Down Man, Your Bloody Tragedy? Yeah, that and was then, one of the ones I read and found like, super interesting at uh -huh. the time. And then there was Things Magazine, which was mm. an offshoot of the VNA. Yeah. Um, building blog, of course, Jeff Manow. Um, aggregate, 456. There was this kind of... I feel like, I mean, I was kind of bearing witness to that moment in architectural discourse uh, from afar, you know, as like an English lit student in 2005. Um, kind of having my curiosity piqued by this like rumbling of a different way about mm. thinking about the built environment. Yeah. Um, I just want to read a few of like the early posts from Fantastic Journal though. I think the first post was in 2004 and it was a review of Pixar's The Incredibles. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, from, a, from like a, it was like an urbanist's take on the, on the film in a way, understanding um, future urban projections by kind of writing a critical review of the movie. Yes. And then, I mean, you, you wrote a tribute to the Swiss Army Knife. There was a tour of Charles Voisey's houses. There are art reviews. And so there was a kind of like wonderful, eclectic mix of thoughts and musings and reflections that always sort of, you were able to tie back to architecture, but it wasn't the kind of architecture theory or criticism that you, uh, you'd be exposed to in school, by any means? No, it drew on things that I really liked, and things like uh, Barth's kind of mythologies, um, some of the Robin Evans stuff, um, again, some of the more um, popular cultural writing. Um, and, yeah, you're right. I mean, um, it was kind of really nice format like you could write as much as you wanted um, you could range over a whole load of topics it seemed you could you know you could write something over a period of time so you sort of generated a kind of idea about it as you were going there was no deadline to commit to and stuff and I remember really being quite you know really pleasantly surprised by kind of the way that content seemed to generate itself I mean I remember writing one about ice cream vans um, and I'd never really thought about it, and I don't know what sparked it off, but I suddenly went, oh, this is great. I mean, I, I could write all day about this. <laughs> I didn't know 
had such an interest in ice cream. <laughs> but then it was, you know, there were things that pulled into that. So when I wrote about them, I wrote about the stylings of them. But then I wrote about them as a sort of mobile restaurant, which, you know, again, then started to have a sort of architectural content because it was about like, um, you know, what, what's a, a restaurant like that's actually like constantly moving. Mm. Um, and a restaurant that kind of transforms the place it arrives in and then goes off. So that chimed with an interest in like, you know, the architecture of event space, which is something I'd sort of been interested in from Arthur Graham and mm-hmm. Shumi. So it was a way to bring quite a lot of different things together. I remember writing, you know, writing about films, writing about period dramas. I was quite interested in, in those and all sorts of things. Some bits were like things I'd been commissioned to do, but most of it was written for it. And then there was this sort of slightly kind of ping pong thing with what other people were writing. Mm-hmm. Some of the ones you mentioned, mm-hmm. and others as well. I remember. I mean, Douglas Murphy had a right. a, a blog which I read very regularly. There was a guy called Mark Fisher who was uh-huh. a very influential uh, critic and cultural theorist. He wrote a, a really amazing blog called K Punk, which yes. reigned, which in some respects pulled a lot of those blogs together into a sort of orbit, um, and. You know, I was really interested in, always been interested in reading about music mm. theory and read voraciously lots of kind of music criticism when I was a teenager in the early 20s and stuff and have felt some of the same spirit, which meant that you could write quite seriously about all sorts of things. Mm. <laughs> Episodes of Doctor Who as much as, um, you know, uh, Villa Savoir. <laughs> so how did you see this uh, blog project? Like, is it a practice for... Um, more formal, a more formal writing career, or is it a social kind of endeavor where you're just engaging with like-minded people? I wonder because um, I feel like blogging has definitely fallen out of fashion mm, now, yeah. and that digital culture is so has become so deeply image-centric that the kind of people who would have been writing blogs ten years ago are now fastidiously curating their Instagram feeds yes. instead. Yeah. And like <laughs> language is slowly falling away from that. Yes, I think that's true. I think Twitter killed blogging really mm-hmm. because it was just so much more immediate and people could say what they think really quickly and you could, and it was obviously a genuine conversation. Whereas the blogs were a conversation but it was like sort of one step removed. Like sometimes you'd be writing a blog with a, with a kind of audience of five in mind <laughs> and other times you'd be writing it with no audience in mind but mm. with Twitter there's always an audience isn't there you say things and wait for the reaction blogging was slightly different and as you say you could you could write quite long form pieces uh, you could really kind of go into quite uh, you know quite rich depths of the topic and it didn't really matter um, and so I think one, the writing blog was for a number of reasons. Some of it was to take part in a social conversation. Like I said, I was quite energised by that and, and in a way it re-energised my interest in architecture quite a lot. I think I had been going through a period of trying to become an architect. Like that had had its first few decent sized projects. Um, I, you know, I'd sort of really thrown myself into to doing those and the kind of procedures and complexities of actually trying to realise a building. And um, I started blogging maybe towards the kind of end of the first phase of that, 
I suddenly became really interested in like talking about it again mm. <laughs> and ex an external conversation um, so maybe I felt like a bit like I was taking my head out of kind of you know two three years of in that particular case trying to do the kind of Islington Square housing scheme mm -hmm. and a couple of other projects which took up a lot of energy and time so and I was really interested again in yeah that, that public conversation and a, and a in a way quite an interesting touchiness <laughs> that existed between the blogs they could be quite critical of each other mm -hmm. and it felt like a really good robust kind of argument uh -huh. in the way that that can really kind of get you going sometimes like you say something and like you know someone would go that's absolute rubbish <laughs> yeah. well, that's quite interesting uh -huh. and quite enjoyable and that felt like that was you know and at the same time you kind of you know click on a blog and suddenly go oh, that's amazing that's really interesting I, you know I've suddenly found this sort of amazing kind of long essay about a thing that I've been interested in for ages but never formulated any proper thoughts on it and here's someone doing that and that was really inspiring and then I think it was a little bit it did lead to you know more formal writing opportunities mm -hmm. and inevitably I think if you look at the profile of a lot of the people who wrote blogs they have gone on to have much more um, traditional writing careers I mean Owen is obviously one of them mm -hmm. and you know he first came on the scene just literally writing his own blog and now um, you know, written a number of books and same with Douglas and other people. So um, I think that's probably also conspired to quiet it down because people are kind of getting on with other, like other more traditional ways to write. Mm -hmm. So maybe it has a, a built-in kind of obsolescence in that sense. But no, but new ones haven't really come along. And I think I think what's interesting for me personally, though is that um, I did also feel that I wanted to um, stop talking quite so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's funny that you mentioned about Instagram because, it, again, it's a way for me to um, sort of talk about the architecture in a more visual sense than I had been doing for a long time. You set out on another project, which was Ordinary Architecture, mm. a practice that you founded with Ellie Ward in 2014? Yeah, right at the end of 2013, yeah. Okay. Um, and so this is a major, in a way, a major transition into another way of practicing with different people mm. and with different commissions. And so like, I just wonder if we can just touch quickly on Ordinary Architecture as a project. I mean, it was a really short-lived endeavor, but um, probably exposed or th threw up certain ideas that were maybe lying latent during your time at FAT. 
And so I guess like right off the bat, like why ordinary? Why ordinariness? Um, well, obviously ordinariness has a lineage in architecture, partly through, um, again, Venturi, kind of ugly and ordinary. Um, also the Smithsons, who I really like, who wrote a book called Ordinariness and Light. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, again, it was this slight interest in reversing hierarchies, um, an interest in kind of normal spaces and what they might mean, rather than perhaps really exotic ones necessarily. So I think there's an interest in ordinariness on a number of levels, and um, there was an interest in a design vocabulary that might have some kind of deadpan quality to it, that might not be perhaps as a riposte to fat at that moment, might not be completely overwhelmed with decorative or flamboyant elements. I mentioned before about maybe trying to move on from certain kind of stylistic uh -huh. tropes. Yeah. And I think perhaps at that time, the sort of ordinary aspect was appealing because it might be a way to start to talk about the things we're interested in, but in a slightly less over-designed way. Uh -huh. It's weird though, because I feel like still a lot of the work that was done uh, by ordinary uh, was anything but. Like still to me, there is a kind of uh, exuberance, vividness, almost like flamboyance that uh, you can't help but look at and engage with. And yet maybe the subject matter is banal. And actually I'm realizing I got ahead of myself a bit because I haven't asked you about House for, House for Essex. Although that project was kind of completing during this transition, yes. as I understand it. Yeah. And I think that's a good project to kind of touch on this tension between the utterly banal and the, uh, the just extremely outlandish. Mm. Because it's a project uh, that at its core looks at the story of uh, a normal person and tries to translate it into a building. Mm. I know you probably, this is probably a very well rehearsed <laughs> subject that you've uh, talked about at length so many times before, but for people listening who might not be familiar with it, could we quickly just talk about um, what A House for Essex is and your collaboration with the artist Grayson Perry? Yeah. Um, a House of Essex is, um, or was, commissioned by uh, Living Architecture, which is a, com a, a company set up by Alain de Bottom to build kind of one-off houses. Um, and his, his interest was in exposing people who might not normally be exposed to kind of current contemporary architecture in a domestic setting. Like we might be experiencing it in, when we go into a bank and we go into an office or whatever, but then people might retreat back to quite traditional houses or ones that have traditional aspects to it. And that there was no way to sort of try out something more kind of radical or interesting. So he set it up and then um, he commissioned uh, at that time Fat and Grace and Perry to design one. But it was always a house that had a number of other really kind of interesting key aspects to it. So one that was always going to be in and to some extent about Essex. And um, I'm from Essex and Grayson is from Essex. And um, the first thing we did was to try and find a site and in some respects the finding of the site and the developing of the design 
informed this kind of story of this imaginary person who the house is supposedly dedicated to. So a house for Essex has this kind of fictional patron saint <laughs> who's called Julie Cope. And to some extent, it's, a, it's sort of an idea of a house that's about her or indeed a kind of house that she might have lived in. But it's also um, a mausoleum and something that in the fiction of her life was built kind of posthumously as a sort of tribute. So Grayson developed this story about her, but it's the architecture was developed somewhat in parallel with that, but also sort of informed the story in some ways. So the house is conceived a bit like a kind of pilgrimage chapel, mm-hmm. and the, her life is a bit like the kind of pilgrimage route. So it was conceived you might start in London and then head out to kind of Canby and then you might take this journey up through these various places in her life and end up at the house, like kind of pilgrims might end up at a chapel. And it, it had, therefore, sort of two programmes. One was house and one was chapel, which are combined. So it was always going to be something which had this sort of rather symbolic chapel space that then mixed that with a completely ordinary kind of domestic program mm. but at, at its heart that the house is um, about Essex about this person who um, embodies lots of aspects of the kind of Essex life um, and her story is told partly through a number of quite kind of clearly sort of narrative pieces of art that are in the house um, tapestries and pots that are done by Grayson also appear in the sort of external decoration, which is ceramic. It's clad in um, ceramic tiles, which are decorative and figurative. And then partly through the spatial narrative of it. So the house is conceived as a sort of sequence of spaces, which also relate to her life. There's two bedrooms. For, she has two marriages, and each bedroom is about one of the marriages. Um, and there's a sort of narrative sequence as you walk through the house as it unfolds and opens up and becomes kind of grander and more formal. Um, And those two things, the spatial organisation and the kind of symbolic narrative, are quite enmeshed in my mind, both in how it's designed and in the outcome. Mm. And it's the kind of project that I think very quickly captures the imagination of people who visit it or people who hear about it. Uh, Not only because of um, the story it's telling, but because of its appearance and because of its ambitions. Um, And what I think a lot of people found surprising is that this project wasn't recognized by the architectural establishment in the way that um, you might have expected it to be. There's a award system, the Royal Institute of British Architects every year will nominate a selection of projects uh, for what's called the Sterling Prize, which everyone, architects from London listening to this will know, but um, it kind of, it was left off the list uh, for that. And you gave a talk at the Bartlett, I think, relatively recently, and one of the questions at the end um, touched on this kind of curious uh, omission and the fact that, in a way, institutions like the VNA and the Royal Academy uh, 
fine art institutions are more interested and more able to uh, take on board these ideas that you're exploring through architecture and to celebrate them than um, the architectural establishment is. And there's a kind of deep yeah. irony there. Yeah, it, it's notorious um, missing out <laughs> of that prize was probably a really fitting epitaph for Fat's career because, you know, this is a project that was like, had a Channel 4 doc documentary about it, uh -huh. was kind of in almost every magazine and every newspaper, um, was incredibly sort of uh, high, both high profile and much discussed. Um, and yeah, to some extent, the architectural establishment were sort of slightly horrified by it. <laughs> and in a way that probably fulfilled a lot of, you know, what Fat had been talking about as a sort of problem <laughs> mm. that you know, British architecture can be incredibly insular, really dull, <laughs> totally uninterested and unengaged in kind of the ways that other people might experience architecture. It just has this very internal dialogue where everyone's talking about like sort of whether, you know, whether the shadow gap detailing has been done properly and no one else gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so in a way that the, 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 the buildings um, problematic relationship to architectural culture is kind of, yeah, like I say, quite a fitting thing. I mean, the machinations of how that system works is that it, it was um, shortlisted for a regional award. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I was, I, I met the judges and took them round and they were a pretty stony-faced bunch, I have to say. And they didn't recommend it to get and a regional award, right. which means that it couldn't get a national award, which mm -hmm. means it couldn't get anywhere near the Sterling Prize. Mm. Didn't get even out of the blocks. <laughs> but what made me laugh about it is that year, you know, it was there was something like 13 awards given in the Essex region for new architecture. And I, I thought, okay, so they're saying it's not even the 14th best building in Essex this year. <laughs> that is patently ridiculous. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, I'd, I'd, you know, it'd be kind of, you know, it would be wrong and really arrogant to see me going to win some massive prize, but uh, that did seem a bit of a disconnect mm. <laughs> to me. Um, and there, there were lots, of, there was lots of talk at the time about why it didn't win, and um, uh, I think all sorts of probably prejudices came into play. I'm sure some mm. people don't like it, and still lots of people probably don't like it. I think some people saw it as, you know, problematic, the, the conflation of art and architecture, and therefore it wasn't maybe clearly authored enough for them. They wanted, like, mm. is it designed by an architect or an artist, and mm. is it art or architecture? Um, and maybe that, again, epitomises a lot of Fats' career, which is to sort of move between those worlds, and that therefore makes you quite a difficult animal um, and hard to categorise. And then maybe that building is quite hard to categorise. Um, and that, that might account for it as well. And certainly I think other, maybe, like you say, cultural art institutions were perhaps more able to assimilate its ideas and less rigid in their um, kind of interpretations of what those disciplines might be about. Um, but at the same time, it was very, you know, it was very highly praised and well received by, you know, other people in the architectural world. And, um, you know, I think um, a lot of people are quite surprised when they go to it as well, because I think um, 
the spaces are so kind of highly raw and it was probably for me the most spatially um, interesting and articulate thing that we did at FAP because it had a program that allowed an opportunity to do something that was really, really highly composed, three-dimensionally, spatially. And it, you know, it related to lots of things I really love in the kind of history of, sort of domestic planning and housing. Mm. Um, and it plays lots of interesting games to me about ideas of privacy and then exposure within the house, of territories within the house, of certain kinds of ideas like the theatre of everydayness, like in that house taking a bath becomes like a major event. You can kind of come out of your um, bedroom, open, about, open two doors and you're in this balcony that's kind of suspended over the living room. There's all sorts of you know, things which I guess in some ways sort of see as like commentaries on the way that houses work and domestic space, um, which are really amazingly enjoyable things to design and that, that brief had a sort of freedom to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just such a tremendous amount of care taken in terms of uh, the kind of genuineness and sincerity with which you approach the project, and yet still somehow, um, in in many people's minds, it's hard to get past the understanding of this as a as a kind of not even architectural folly, but an art piece mm. or something. And so, what does it mean then? Um, to go out on your own, and does that matter? Does that kind of reception matter? Is it important? Does it change the kind of work you're looking to do now? No, in some respects it's um, a lot easier <laughs> um, to, and I feel now m much more confident to put a set of sort of personal professional interests out, which are perhaps less you know, a commentary or less a kind of didactic position within architectural culture and a more to do with both the response to the things that you're designing and the development of a series of kind of personal sort of artistic interests. Um, and I, you know, I've, I find that a very kind of rich and rewarding place to be right now. Um, I think definitely House for Essex was quite a pretty effective springboard for that because it was such a intense... Um, way to to sort of finish off a whole series of interests. In some respects, that building can be seen as a really good summation of lots of fats interests. So, interest in decoration, and ornamentation, or re-engagement those things, an interest in uh, relationships in figurative and abstract aspects of architecture, an interest in narrative uh, and communication, um, and all of those things are kind of done super intensely in that building in a way that we probably hadn't really ever been able to do before. At the same time, it sort of introduces a whole load of new things that perhaps like that building is quite different to a lot of others in the sense that, as I said before, the spatial complexity of the interior is, means that it's not reducible to say certain things that were said about fats architecture, like oh, it's about a kind of facade with a rather simple thing behind it. I don't think that was ever the case. A simple thing and a and the supposedly complex thing were always in some interesting dialogue to me. But because the House for Essex isn't reducible to facade and shed, um, and clearly there's a whole load of other things going on, it sort of then perhaps introduced some new things to the um, equation, um, which have carried on. 
You've mentioned elsewhere that uh, the work you're doing is becoming less discursive and literary mm. and somehow more material and formal. Yeah. Um, is that just a factor of, of kind of growing into oneself as a designer? Is it a factor of, I don't know, a certain kind of stoicism <laughs> that think, evolves as, some, as, as one ages? I think it's a reflection inevitably that... Um, the more you do, uh, the more you realise that ultimately the, the thing itself is like a material thing. Um, and therefore, however much sort of narrative or literary ways into it that you have, the kind of physicality of the thing you're designing is ultimately, the, increasingly to me, what you need to engage in. <laughs> like That seems really obvious, but I think coming from a perhaps quite a sort of conceptual starting point in the early days of, okay, here's, a, here's an idea, and then how does one make that physically manifest? Um, I think I'm now more interested in a kind of physical starting point, like designing a piece of architecture from the point of view of its, the things it's made of and, and what they say and what they do and how they do what it is. In a way, ideas develop now in a different way from how they did in the fat office, and probably that is partly because they, they develop with less discussion as a starting point. I'm much happier now to sort of start the thing and not quite know what it is and to follow that process and be uh, a bit looser and more open about where it might lead. And I really enjoy that openness. So I'm, I'm less, I feel less need to kind of close things down as to what is this project doing, what is it saying, and is this right or is this good or is this interesting and more happy to kind of let the project flow and there's a reasonable confidence there that it, it's going to coalesce at some point. So I quite like that openness and open-endedness of the process. And again, going back to earlier parts of the conversation, the fact that that escapes from certain sort of preconceived formal endpoints is something I think is highly positive. <laughs> um, and um, I'm, I'm really interested in you know, developing new uh, ways to um, you know, articulate the architecture. There are certain you know, things that are coming out of the stuff that we're designing now in the office, which I hadn't quite expected to come out, but I'm really enjoying that. And um, I think that, that feels kind of very exciting. They don't necessarily look like anything I've done before. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about what what those projects are? Yeah, I mean, we're doing a number of different things at the moment. I mean, we're designing three houses, um, and each of those are quite particular, and they all have quite interesting circumstances. So one of them is actually a collaborative project, which I'm doing with Pierce Taylor, which is um, for a house in Oosterveld uh, in Holland, which is a new bit of, sort of self-build mm. town. Um, and essentially uh, you can buy a plot of land and there are a number of particular kind of restrictions or um, ideas about how that land is divided up and used but you can more or less build whatever house you want to build so within those constraints and one of the constraints some of the constraints are just volumetric like it can only be this tall and it can only be this much of the plot and it needs to be this far away from the boundary um, and others are sort of more interesting in a programmatic sense is like um, 
a certain percentage of the land needs to be used for um, what they classify as urban farming. So there's an element of self-sufficiency to each plot. So our clients have got a plot which is currently just a massive field with a dike running down one edge. And each plot gets developed individually, but the individual owners kind of club together to put, start putting the infrastructure in. Um, and um, our client is, we're designing a house for them where it'll sit in an orchard effectively. Um, so we've done this little uh, kind of wooden tower, which is the maximum height you can do, and has a split section, which means that you can um, get this incredibly long view, because of course the landscape's completely flat. Polder landscape, and, the, and um, it's above the tree line of the orchard. Mm. Um, and the client has, um, uh, has a telescope, it's a really kind of keen stargazer. So, this is a bedroom with this kind of big window and the telescope in it, and then this amazing epic view. Mm. And the house is a bit like a very formalized wooden cabin. <laughs> Um, so there were, there were lots of uh, sort of language game of quite ordinary uh, timber shed cabin kind of stuff, which then combined with this quite refined, complicated split section. Mm. Um, and then the fact that the house gets starts at ground level as um, almost like an outdoor room, which is somewhere like kind of somewhere between like a potting shed and a conservatory and um, a workshop <laughs> and then you go up half a level and it becomes a kind of little kitchen space and another half level becomes dining space another half level becomes a study and another half level becomes a bedroom and so it has this um, really nice kind of vertical transition into the slightly otherworldly nature of being at the top of this house so that's a really nice project um, which I'm working on and I'm doing another house which is very local to where I am at the moment um, in Kent, which is quite near the White Cliffs of Dover. And that is, that's developed out of a really kind of um, close sort of reading of the kind of history of domestic architecture in the area. This is the Chakup project? No, oh. no, this is um, kind of known at the moment in the office as a house with a cat slide roof. Oh, okay. So it has this kind of huge, epic... Um, sweeping tiled roof that comes mm -hmm. down almost to the ground. So on one side the house is almost invisible in a way, and on the other, and it's very low lying and kind of informal. And on the other side it has this very formal, almost kind of slightly abstracted classical facade, and it changes material character and colour and formality as you go from one side to the other, um, which has some sort of formal relationships to topography. So it's got this basically rather earth-coloured kind of sweeping roof and on the other side there's this white chalk facade mm -hmm. but also very kind of formal facade with suggested columns and certain kind of proportional rhythms and stuff. Um, so that's another project we're doing. And then the third one I'm doing is a house in Surrey which is in a... Um, conservation area full of Gothic Revival houses, kind of 1850s. Um, and we're doing a house which, to some extent, is like a companion piece to an existing little Gothic Revival lodge. Mm. And it's like a sort of mirror of that, in a way. It does, it, it does lots of the things the other one does, but in a slightly different way. 
So some of the some of the external detailing is a kind of sort of flattened representation of the other one and certain spatial and formal relationships. So that's doing three different houses. Um, and then I'm doing um, a project in Dover, which is about sort of regeneration of the high street, which is a, a much more, um, which is a really interesting project because it's, you know, Dover High Street has lots of very particular kind of issues, which are both general, but are very specific to that place. And we're doing a project where basically it's a sort of prototype for how you can rejig mm. lots of the shop units on the high street, which have become vacant and for various reasons, not least that access to upper floors is really difficult. So it's a kind of pilot project for how you might regenerate the high street, which is really interesting. Um, and then the Chalk Up 21 project, which you mentioned, was um, is quite interesting because it's it's about the place where I am and it's basically a, it's an architectural trail that goes from Folkestone to Deal and it takes in a whole number of kind of contemporary recent bits of art and architecture and I designed a number of kind of markers that go along it but it's quite interesting to do a project which is like you know completely about the place where the practice is based um, and we're doing a talk about it on in one of the buildings in like a month's time and it seems like a project that has a sort of legacy in a life beyond itself, like it opens up a whole load of conversations really about um, the role of you know, contemporary art and architecture in places which are perhaps less easy with that than London and mm. other sort of major urban centres. So I'm very kind of interested in slightly counterintuitively the sort of role of modernism and um, a commitment to some kind of, you know, progressive um, cultural and artistic program, mm -hmm. particularly at a time when the country, you know, feels very increasingly insular and not reactionary. <laughs> mm. And the, you know, if you look at those places like kind of Kent, you realise actually, there's a, and rather like the Radical Essex program, there's this amazing legacy of actual quite radical experimental stuff in places that we don't necessarily associate it with anymore. Um, so that project, the Chalk Up project, is quite an interesting way to start developing a, uh, a sort of attitude to that. For me, the, that project in particular uh, maybe brings us back to a place where we started in this conversation, talking about um, figures like Graham or Venturi, who are in some ways are, are advocates for architecture. And the, the, the Chaka project uh, is, I think, essentially a series of like uh, signs along mm. a path, yeah. um, giving you insights into surrounding buildings. Yes. Kind of in the, in the style of like nature interpretation plaques, uh, or at least in, in my mind, that's what it feels like. And that you're, you're kind of, you're given some insight into these different species or specimens along yes. the way. Yeah. And in some cases, they're buildings that um, conventionally you wouldn't expect to have a plaque associated with. And yet, there is so much to see in them and there's mm. so much to say about them mm. uh, and appreciate in them. And I feel like there's, an, there's a kind of interpretive work there. Yeah. There's a kind of advocacy there and there's a kind of... Um, um, insistence that these are enchanting things and that they deserve a wider audience. I think that's a really nice way to describe it. I think both the advocacy is really important 
and the sense of you know these exotic things being there if you start you know they're of course there but starting to sort of celebrate and enjoy them feels to me like a really important project right now I can't kind of overstate that in a sense that I feel like um you know yeah a, co- a commitment to kind of celebrating what you know the what's really important about architecture's kind of contribution to society feels you know in a in a time where you can look around and see any number of really terrible kind of new housing projects and there's a desperate need for you know new housing in rural areas but an incredible skepticism and resistance to it at the same time and i think partly that's because i think those people have lost faith that it that it could be a, a positive thing to build a new you know a new village can be something that rather than being a loss in actual fact it could be quite the opposite Charles thanks so much for your time that's a pleasure thank you very much you've been listening to scaffold I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by Jean-Jacques Perret. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thanks to Henley Hailbrown Architects for hosting the interview this week, and thank you to Charles Holland. And as always, thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.